Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Vet Guru, Brendan here with Vet Guru Mark, vetgurus.com. Go there, stay there, listen, subscribe, become a friend of us. Mark, how are you? I'm great, Brendan. I am awesome. <sighs> I must be catching Mark because I'm very chipper at the moment, very happy, very, things are good, work's busy, um, life's busy, family are good. Um, yeah, have a few days off a week. Life in the same good. box. Life end. is good, Mark. Um, yeah, maybe we should call it quits there, Mark, <laughs> <laughs> and head out of here. So hello to everybody, all our new subscribers. Send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. Think about going to our Etsy site, etsy.com. Just search for Vet Gurus, all one word, and browse through the amazing incredible merchandise you can purchase and the quality of them is amazing i must admit um i'm about to order another bit of merch from our merch store again mark Um, i won't tell you what it is till i receive it and it'd be good if our subscribers could do the same not only it helps promote the website but it gives us a couple of cents maybe a dollar if we're lucky um to help our production costs so do it, do it now, Wait, or maybe no. after you listen to this a, um, little production we have today. Um, we don't have a review this week. Um, we don't have. Well, any I was going to. I was going to tell you. Yes. Tell you about um, uh, what I've, I've. I've been speaking of you buying something from our Etsy store. I have been looking up. I need to re- brush up on crocodile sedation and so i was um looking in a textbook uh recent recently um a textbook that um you were the editor and the chapter on uh uh, reptile anesthesia and analgesia i was a co-author um so it is very in-house and you know so That's you had to go book. and look up your own chapter to find I out did. what i did what, have to what review to what i wrote <laughs> lucky i had a co-author was it um, useful? <laughs> oh, it was. It was wonderful. I, I encourage everyone to go and have a look at that. Or did the um, author just sort of talk for ages and not really tell you much at all? <laughs> well, sub- the is there substance? <laughs> the editors did a great job of um, of keeping us on track. I think. Yeah, I think it was cut down enormously that chapter just <laughs> off the, off the top of my head. Yes, so fantastic textbook that one. Um, you, uh, I have to. If you can browse and look up the um, name of it again, the <laughs> name, um, and I, will, I think it's what reptile medicine in clinical practice. practice that's like that. exactly yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, very good textbook. If I say so myself, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, some interesting chapters in there, especially the anesthesia one. Now, tell me about this. You have to anesthetize a crocodile, do you? Yes, it's um. Well, the the it looks like I'll get I'll get the chance to work with a team. Who are putting a um, a tracker, a solar powered tracker? Um, the tracker, the the technology for these trackers is has improved dramatically. Um, and you you know those people wandering around the bush with giant clothesline like 
um, wire aerials looking for animals to beat back at them. Now they, um, you know, the the little kit, it only weighs about, I think it was 170 grams. It gets bolted onto their scoots. But when you do that process, when you glue and bolt them on, um, it, they, the crocodile has to be sedated. Um, they expect them to last seven years, Brendan. The, the, they, um, they, uh, they, battery gets recharged from the sun, and uh, and yeah, there will be a whole lot of data. And you can just log in online. The um, satellite picks it up and does a little graph of what the crocodile is doing and all its um, vital statistics. Pretty and- amazing. We will um, chat further once you get to the actual process. Guts Very keen. Matter. Very keen. Yes. Very um, keen to discuss it. Yes, I'm excited. I'm excited, Mark. Um, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm even looking forward to even more that you still have all your limbs. After <laughs> um, well, like I said, I can only thank the wonderful editors of uh, um, uh, Reptile Medicine in Clinical Practice for, for my uh, uh, expertise. Excellent. Okay, well, I think with that we're going to jump into things, um, keep things moving well, here, Mark. I think you have the first news story. My news story is about um, emus. Jeez, um, oh, they're wonderful birds, Brendan, um, and uh, they show up all the time on my TikTok, particularly those ones that get a fright and run around like they've lost their mind. This story, though, is uh, about emus that have gone, that have gone from Tasmania um Apparently, emus were one of the um, the uh, herbivores that um, were critical in maintaining the habitat in Tasmania. But upon the arrival of Europeans, um, particularly Europeans with hunting dogs, um, they were quickly hunted off the island and they are currently extinct. Um, there were subspecies of emus on other islands, on King Island and, uh, and what was the, uh, uh, oh, but that, and those subspecies were very small. They were, um, you know, the uh, kangaroo island emus were only 24 to 27 kilos, where mainland ones often uh, topped the scales over 40 kilos. Um, but fortunately, the Tasmanian emus are much the same as the mainland ones, and so there's a proposal at the moment to rewild them in Tasmania. We're back. Well, we've had a couple of technical glitches here and our audio has changed because we're recording this second part, or maybe second quarter, uh, second two-thirds, Mark, uh, on another day, and you can probably hear the rain in the background because Mark is... Well, he's recording in a in the shower, I think. Um, so anyway, Mark, you're talking about rewilding emus. Let's get stuck into it quickly before we lose our internet today. Good to hear your voice, Brendan. And it is raining here, um, but the rewilding of emus, uh, uh, this whole rewilding thing fascinates me. Emus once roamed uh, all over Tasmania. Um, not many people realise that, but uh, they're currently extinct. Um and uh, they were driven to extinction by uh, research suggested by um, the introduction of Europeans and their dogs, which um, made a bit of a dent in the population. Um, But there are uh, agencies currently um, contemplating the, the, uh, the return of the emu to the wild in Tasmania. It's interesting because many island emus that are extinct 
um, were considerably smaller than the mainland one, but the emus on Tasmania were not. They were about the same size, nearly 40 kilograms. It, uh, uh, it's not a big you know, stretch to say that we can replace them. And, of course, large herbivores play critical roles in ecosystems all around the world and probably in Tasmania as well. Um, they chew on plants, pushing out the vegetation, pushing the vegetation and churning up the soil. Um, the the um, emus in particular are famous for uh, being excellent agents of seed dispersal. They don't they eat a lot of the plant material, but don't necessarily completely digest the seeds. They get passed through their digestive system after a very long walk with those long legs and uh, are planted on the ground in a nice pile of manure to be fertilised. So they're very efficient agents of um, of uh, dispersal of seeds and maybe uh, some people argue they uh, that process may change the structure of some um, environment. So yeah, all things told, it um, seems like on the surface a very good uh, idea, but I don't know, Brendan, I I still worry about these um, rewilding on many levels rewilding seems like a good idea but the complexity of the ecosystem and the changes we've already wrought may mean that um things don't turn out as people expect what do you think i agree mark i think the difficulty is struggle enough trying to maintain the habitats of species that are not have not been rewilded mark um that are just in their natural habitat um not from an area where they become extinct previously, and we're struggling to keep those ones, aren't we, um, from becoming extinct and, and their habitats going. So, yeah, it's it's a nice thought. It makes you feel warm inside, but I don't know whether it's going to work, Mark, but um, it's a good thought. That's it, my comment, Mark. It's a good <laughs> thought, and I'll, I'll look to see what happens with it and whether it actually goes through that process. They haven't committed to it by the sound of it but they're thinking of doing it so watch this space mark and we will report back on it depending on if we hear anything and if it works um there's not really much of a segue to my um well that's another animal story mark my our, our, story our, our, our coat of arms brendan it's an excellent segue. Yeah. Yes, it is. Well, that's, that's, yes, you've found the segue there. I'm talking about soccer boots or football boots, depending on what region of the world you live in, that are made from kangaroo skin, Mark. And I didn't realize this. Um, this is, it's a report out of Portland in Oregon where they're thinking about or they are putting a bill through that would ban the sale of kangaroo parts that have been introduced um, in the US state. So football boots are one of the only products made from kangaroo leather that are routinely sold in Oregon apparently and I can see these picture we got and we'll link to this um, particular story. Um, Nike use kangaroo leather for their soccer shoes mark and I think they're not the only company that do that. And their concern is that it's, according to the article, unconscionable that millions of native wild Australian animals have been killed for the sake of high-end soccer cleats worn by a subset of elite soccer players. So I found this fascinating, Mark. Um, I suppose my first one of, the, one of my thoughts or concerns or comments are that um, 
you know, why do they use kangaroo leather in these soccer boots? Um, and I think we were chatting off air, you were talking about them perhaps that the, 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 they're more supp- supple and, and um, give you a bit of a hop, Mark, maybe a spring in your step, um, perhaps, something like that. So, um, but uh, I just, I don't quite understand. Um, I expect they're going to be high price, these kangaroo skin soccer or football boots as well mark so they mark yes that's right so um i think it's a good idea that they get rid of it um mark um the only other comment i had about this article is um their quote is that commercial harvest of kangaroos in australia is legal more than 1.3 million kangaroos are killed for commercial purposes in 2021 and that they do not like the thought of doing that. And I think it does um, mention, rate a comment for um, commercial harvesting of animals, Mark, um, as opposed to farming of animals. Um, and, and some purists would think that harvesting of animals such as kangaroos, where the animal is living its full life as a wild animal until it's shot in the head and, and made into uh, football boots, um, <laughs> Is a better way um, morally, I suppose, and also that animal gets to live a, a full life until it's um, harvested rather than having a species that is farmed, Mark, like obviously our domestic animals like cows and sheep, etc. And um, what's your thoughts on that, that Mark? I'm much the same. I think um, the use of kangaroo skin leather in football boots is probably a marketing, you know, they've probably been able to buy them buy it relatively inexpensively and and they've marketed it very well as k leather um and obviously charge i bet they charge a premium i think um uh the the bill is in is acted in enact is about to be enacted in portland oregon um because that's where nike's factory is the company that produces these boots and so it will effectively stop the production by preventing the factory from using that stuff. And I agree with you, Brendan. I think um, there's a dis- there's a perception overseas that um, we Australians are selling off our national emblem, um, uh, you know, until there's none left. But um, the, the, there are other things that are affecting the population of kangaroos, droughts and uh, pasture management. Um, I don't know that they're sustainable harvest is uh, is actually questioned as a as a population factor um, significantly. I, I, I there as you said there are there are other pressures in the wild that um, we need to keep an eye on, and at least these animals have had a uh, you know a chance to live their best wildlife, um, and um, and I don't doubt their their um, the end of that life was as humane as it possibly could be. So, yeah, agree with you entirely. Yes, but a bit of a weird one, that one, Mark, a bit of a weird one, but um, thanks to our helpers with finding a, a researchers, we should call them, um, finding that, that particular story there. I think we'll jump straight into our main topic, Mark, and that is one that you suggested. And that is coracoid fractures in birds. So, Mark, we're back after a little glitch there. What is the coracoid? What is the bone? What is it? Is it one bone, more bones? What does it do? Bones, bones, bones. It's part of the shoulder. 
part of the shoulder girdle. Um, so on the proximal side of the shoulder joint, there are three bones, the clavicle, scapula, and the coracoid. Um, and the coracoid runs down, um, what's I suppose medio caudal from the joint within the uh, chest space and attaches to the sternum, stabilizing, uh, you know, acting as a point of fulcrum for the pectoral muscles um, to cause the birds to fly. Um, so it's a long bone, um, and it um, and it does sit inside the the uh, the. Um, the sternum, the bony sternum, and um, and so it's in a very delicate position, and it's an important bone, Brendan. And I think your key point there, Mark, is that it is important in helping that bird fly, which we'll get to in more detail when we talk about some of the wildlife that's brought in with these fractures and the, the outlook for them, Mark, um, because we want to get them back out there flying, don't we? So what does it do? What does it do? We've covered that, haven't we? Um, do you want to just summarise what it does? Well, just how it, how it does it, how it does how it, it, does it. Yeah. Um, it's just part of those three bones that stabilizes the proximal part of the shoulder joint and allows the birds to flap. But the key thing about that anatomy that I think is important to emphasize is that it's the bone that is, uh, if a force hits the wing or shoulder in flight, so from the cranial direction, most of the force is transmitted through the humerus or through the joint to the coracoid um, and while the other bones might fracture the scapula less commonly sometimes the clavicle the wishbone um, the coracoid is the one that accepts most of those forces that are directed uh, caudally as the bird travels forward if that makes sense which answers partially the next question mark it's uh <laughs> How does it get that. broken? How does it get broken? Um, and I suppose that the important bit with that is it's a pretty common bone to potentially be broken, isn't it, because of what your little preamble there spoke about. Very, very commonly broken. One of the, the, the most common fractures we see in birds, and, um, and there's probably two or three main ways it happens. The first one is the pet bird situation where a bird flying at relatively low speed, uh, comes up to an, an obstacle, a window or whatever, plays like a little bit of avoidance, moves it, because if it hits a window with its head, um, then most of the force is going to result in a, um, a subdural hematoma or um, some sort of head trauma that could potentially kill the bird. But a pet bird travelling at low speed um, will veer away and then bang, hit its shoulder or its wing into the window or the staircase or whatever it is, um, and then all those forces are transmitted through the humerus and leveraged onto the coracoid and it cracks. We definitely see other birds in the wild. Birds of prey are an interesting one because I think they regularly hit power lines. Um, swift parrots are another one, the endangered species from New South Wales here in Australia. They hit glass pool fencing. Um, and balcony fencing at a disproportionate rate. Um, and if it doesn't kill them, those injuries uh, do tend to, uh, those birds do tend to injure the coracoid very, very frequently. Excellent. Well, not for the bird, but excellent description there, Mark. And a tricky, a tricky bit of a break, isn't it, this one, as far as 
vets who are not experienced with dealing with birds, especially those pet birds, in diagnosing it, Mark? Um, what's your tips with that? I mean, uh, the obvious one is the history there, and and, and it may, might be a vague history, may, may, may it, uh, it, <laughs> it may be, um, where the client just brings a bird in and says, my bird is just seems a bit weird it's not flapping around much it's in it's been inside when we've been away out shopping or whatever and and um it just just doesn't look quite right and it can't manage to get up to its perch um what's what your tips on on diagnosing this fracture mark is there, is it easy to just palpate and to feel it and if if so what's the sort of technique that you recommend doing very, very good question, Brennan. And it is difficult to diagnose. Like if the bird has, you know, a fractured um, uh, tibiotarsis or some bone in the in the leg, then you know you can see the extra bend Pretty in an unusual obvious, location. Yes. It's on the outside, um, but because this bird, the bone is uh, within, uh, you know, it's protected by the sternum. You can't sort of see it's uh, the damage to it, and Oftentimes, if the birds, you know, the birds will look relatively normal, but these birds won't be able to fly. They can't obviously generate the forces because that bone's critical to allowing the wing to generate lift. And if it's not there or not functioning normally, then then they won't be able to fly. So the th- key things on presentation, a bird that's suddenly not able to fly, the rest of the wing looks okay, but there's an asymmetry. One wing often isn't it it may be hanging lower often not often it's a a rotated around the shoulder so the wings look asymmetric because one wing um, is rotated differently to the other but the the um i generally avoid palpating them while they're conscious for a reason i'll mention in a minute um uh, but i would routinely palpate them while they're anaesthetized particularly during the radiographic procedure i reckon um, you've got to get some good radiographs to get a definitive diagnosis here and it really leads us on to um, the good radiographic diagnosis leads us on to the best course of action for that bird yes and now just before you jump into that description of the um, radiographs mark or taking those those x-rays um some people might say you know what about shouldn't we be seeing bruising in that area wouldn't won't it be obvious that you'll see something in that shoulder region what's your comment on that well it you would normally think that it is and funnily enough there is often changes to the quality of the tissue that you can appreciate once the bird's anesthetized but the feathers conceal a whole lot of uh of issues and depending on where the fracture is along the coracoid it's often mid shaft that might be a, a you know in a cockatiel size bird it might be nine millimeters from the joint that yep. the fractures actually occurred now the key thing i wanted to mention about that palpation brendan is that there uh, and it was reported at one of the conferences that exuberant overenthusiastic palpation can move the fracture fragments and there have been, di- you know, um, cases where the shape of the the um, the fractured coracoid behaves like a knife inside the thoracic inlet, and there's definitely cases of la- completely lacerating the trachea, 
and um, some major vessels in other cases um, that leads to the quick demise of the bird. So um, while the birds are often very stable um, while they're conscious, palpating them, it's very important to be very careful and to warn the client that this sort of fracture is on occasion associated with um, dangerous consequences just because of the position of those fracture fragments. Excellent point, Mark. Don't kill them. Yeah, if you can help it. Yes. So with that radiograph, how easy or not is it to detect that fracture, especially with some of the more subtle ones? And are there any particular views that might help with that? I always find, we always take both lateral and VD views of the whole bird. And that's one of the beauty of working with birds that you can fit the whole, usually the whole bird on the plate. Um, I often find the lateral view to be a bit confusing um, and superimposed radio-dense sternal and rib bones make it very difficult to interpret. But the VD, particularly a VD that's very well aligned, and this is why you need the bird anaesthetized, yes. um, so that you can position the wings, the bird won't often won't sit perfectly symmetrical in the wings because of the exact reason we talked about before, the the uh, shoulder's not stabilised, um, but getting them as symmetrical as you can um, and that VD view and make the, the comparison, often the comparison between um, the left and the right side gives you clear evidence that there's something wrong. And, and still in that view, there's superimposition of bony structures over the top, but it's usually not the most radio-dense um, and variable aspect of the sternum. It's sort of like the clean perpendicular view, the, the least variable view. So you can usually make an interpretation from there. It is important to distinguish the coracoid from those other bones of the shoulder, the scapula and the, the uh, clavicle. Uh, but most of the time, the VD view does it very, very well. Great response there, Mark. You're on fire today. You are on fire. So what do we do now? Let's break it down to particular types of birds. Let's just go with the pet birds for a start, Mark. What's your treatment? What's your recommendation? You find a classic sort of coracoid fracture there that's not too massively displaced. It doesn't look like it's going to impale the bird at any time or you are abnormally palpating it. What's your recommendation? It's interesting, Brendan, and I'll, I'll tell you why it's interesting in a minute. But my recommendation is that the bird be bandaged in a figure of eight bandage to stabilize the wing against the body wall um, and be rested in a relatively small cage for two, two weeks is usually sufficient. The bone is very metabolically active. It heals relatively quickly and the bird's metabolism is evolved to heal the bones, particularly the bones associated with flight, relatively quickly. So we're not talking about something that's going to take six or eight weeks. Um, uh, 11 to 14 days will usually be sufficient. Um, and most of the birds, interestingly enough, most pet birds that have this injury and have um, good quality pain relief, uh, restricted activity in a smaller than usual cage, and... Um, and a figure of eight bandage limiting movement, um, they heal up completely and often return to completely normal flight, pleasingly. Excellent. And I presume we put them on a little bit of medicine to help them with any discomfort there. 
You're exactly right. I mentioned it before. We we during the the initial phase, we'll often use opiates to provide acute pain relief. Once the, everything's stable and the figure of eight bandage is in place, then um, we drop back to our non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, usually meloxicam, and keep the birds on that for the duration of the time that they're, um, they're confined. Um, so it sounds like that outlook's pretty good for these pet birds, Mark, assuming that we don't have any you know, severe internal um, damage, et cetera, with them. Um, what about the wild birds, Mark? Let's, and, and let's break that down into a couple of different um, types there. Let's, let's jump straight to the raptors. Tell me about them and what, what, what are recommendations for them if we diagnose a coracoid fracture in a raptor? Well, it's a difficult one, Brendan, but I think uh, the majority of times, because most raptors are going to need very strong and uh, well-controlled flight to be effective hunters in the wild. Um, it's it's a hard call to make um, to ask, you know, where a pet bird could have maybe a five or ten percent deficit in their their flight ability, and that not affect their quality of life for the rest of their life. In fact, probably we wouldn't even detect it. That difference in manoeuvrability and um, and strength and uh, ability to position themselves for attack or defence is probably going to be, um, you know, critical and possibly even um, a comp- life compromising in a wild bird. So I think the key thing here is that uh, the process needs to begin with an assessment of the likelihood that the bird's going to get a complete recovery. Um, uh, the more highly strung uh, raptors, um, uh, the, the, um, some of those falcons and accipiters, um, I, I think humane euthanasia at the earliest stage might be the wisest thing. Um, with well-trained staff and uh, uh, facility and a likelihood that we're going to go uh, be able to recover the bird, then certainly treatment is uh, is something that should be contemplated. Because the birds need that perfect flight, these are the birds that we would consider some form of surgical stabilisation. Um, and the surgery is not for the lighthearted. Obviously, we're approaching the shoulder joint. We're probably going to place some intramedullary pins. We're positioning um, those pins with you know essentially within the thoracic inlet um, and uh, but if it's done well um, that can often lead to a bird that uh, particularly a raptor that returns to normal flight and um, is a release candidate yes and there's there is some good paper descriptions articles um, references um, relating to that particular surgery in raptors market isn't it fascinating brendan those papers I was um I was reviewing them recently and um they're they're bloody all from Healesville for some reason Healesville Sanctuary has gotten uh, the coracoid bug and back in two thousand and one someone published about it uh, back in well it's uh, it's my mate um, Pete yes. Holtz um, yes. who who happens to listen to the podcast I think so shout out to you Pete there you go <laughs> um, well there done. are people that read your paper Pete. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So that's our raptors, Mark. So what about some of the other wild birds then? If we, if we, you mentioned the swift parrots, uh, what's, your, what's your thoughts on sort of the cage rest scenario with those ones or not? Do we need to get them back to full, full flight, um, especially for some of those species that they fly a fair distance, don't they, some of these birds? <laughs> Well, the interesting one for me has been always kookaburras. I know they were a feature of the series that were published by the Healesville Group. Um, Kookaburras have the added complication of a time-dependent return to their society. So if you have a kookaburra in captivity for four to six weeks, they'll be excluded from their family group um, and uh, they'll not you know they'll be beat up and kicked out when they go back so we tend to not do surgery on the kookaburras it takes a little bit longer to get them back to normal um, and uh, we do depend on the cage rest so that they're only out of the the social context for you know two weeks three weeks sort of max we'll often try and set them up with a carer so that they can um, be in their home territory. If we have a carer that's in that bird's home territory, um, then their family group will come down and talk to them while they're in an outdoor cage and they can maintain that social connection while they heal. But if they're unable to do that, they'll be rejected when they get out a couple of months later and um, it's heartbreaking for everyone. Yeah, those kookaburras, Mark, we've spoken about it um privately that they, they can be pretty nasty to each other can't they they can be pretty aggressive birds um i, I love them but um i think i sent you a video of a you had yes yes um so yes okay excellent so i think we got only one more thing to talk about with coracoid fractus marker or our quick summary of it and that is prevention can we prevent this happening well, when we talk about prevention, I suppose there's, you know, once again, that wild pet division. In the pet bird situation, um, I tend to talk to new bird owners about training. Most birds do these sorts of injuries when they do something that they're unfamiliar with. And if they're not trained, um, you know, to, to fly on command, to jump onto your finger on command, then they're much more likely to do something mad and crazy and, and end up with an injury. So in captive birds, training is the critical thing. With our wild birds, um, I think if anyone has a pool fence or a, a balcony um, that has glass on it, or if they have um, uh, wires that run um, from a telegraph pole, making them abundantly clear to the birds, whether that's, you know, some... Uh, orange tags that go on um, on the wires or the, the uh, aircraft aware balloons, those sorts of things that make the birds aware that there's something there. And a bunch of, you can now buy commercially a bunch of stickers that um, you can stick on those glass. And I know it sort of defeats the purpose. People like the glass balcony or the glass um, a pool fence because it gives the impression that nothing's there um, but uh, letting the bird know that something is there with a decal of some sort. Well Mark fantastic summary of coracoid fractures in birds, what more could we want? Excellent um, and I think with that we're going to get out of here and we'll talk to you next week
Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.